it's time to sit down and relax for the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A with your host, Doug. Hey there, Doug here. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe. Now, this is our 99th episode. It's kind of surreal. And next week's is our big 100th. And it involves a trilogy that's all about going 88 miles per hour. So, of course, I'm talking Back to the Future. Next week, we're covering part three. But this week means I have to interview somebody from it. And I interviewed actor Jeffrey Weissman, who played George McFly in parts two and three. He took over the role for Crispin Glover. There's a lot that goes into that. So I'll let you tell, I'll let Jeffrey tell it because it's a lot better than I can. And it's a great story. It's really, it's kind of mind blowing when you really think about it. And also, Jeffrey talks about how he started in acting. He has stories that involve everyone from Alice Cooper, Milton Berle's brother, uh, Twilight Zone the movie, Dom DeLuise, and a whole lot more. All right, so I'm going to play the interview. But before, I just want to give you a little bit of an idea about why it's starting like that. So just before this, we were talking about the coronavirus. This is like right when it started. I just got back from the food store. I'm in Jersey. Jeffrey's in California. So we're just talking about the way things are where we live. And I was just like, oh man, this is, and it was like three or four minutes we were talking about it because how can you not talk about it? But then I was like, then I used the awkward transition. Some might say it's a Larry King-esque. Maybe Larry King could steal it from me. I don't know. But that's, that's why it sounds like that when the interview starts. But without further ado, here's actor Jeffrey Weissman. So, uh, so great. So let's talk about something happier. Let's talk about your career. So, uh, so, <laughs> so I, I, I like to start. To see, the, yeah. Um, I was happy to see you had, uh, Robert Hayes on. Yes. He was awesome. I did a show with him, uh, last year in Vegas, a sort of a back to the eighties kind of celebration convention. And it was, it was a blast. He was one of the handful of celebrities from the eighties that were there, myself included. Uh, oh, did you see cool. that uh, Jay Benedict just passed away, the actor from uh, Aliens? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Since since this is a sequel show, he was in Aliens, you know, 2, or what, Alien 2, which, uh, never mind. Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'll calm there's down. There's a few. There, breathing. No, breathing. there's a few, re- yeah, there's a few recently. Oh, yeah, Jay Benedict, I didn't see that. Oh, that was just yesterday. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh man. So yeah, that's, that's cool. You, you were able to, who else is at a, at the event like that? You, Robert Hayes, uh, uh, Debbie, Debbie Berry did, did, uh, I'm not saying her name, right. Um, a voice over actress, mostly in cartoons like Rugrats and such. And she also was Pee-wee's girlfriend in Pee-wee's big adventure. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can't uh, think of her last name, but yeah. Uh, the young guy, the uh, or he's not yet, he's my age now. Um, the, uh, <laughs> one of the teenage mutant ninja turtles, uh, Asian American actor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm blanking on names, um, but nonetheless, it was it was a cute little show with a lot of good rock and roll from the '80s. Thomas Dolby and uh, the cat lead singer Mike from uh, Flock of Haircuts, Flock of Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I like to start in the beginning of folks. Obviously, we'll get into like your start of your career, but like growing up. So where did you grow up? Oh, uh, at my house. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was a nice house too. Uh, the first house I remember was big. Uh, no, I was, nice. I was I was raised in L.A. Uh, oh, so right in the thick of it. Yeah, and for me it was exciting because often there'd be shoots for television or films uh, in the neighborhood. I remember, I guess I was coming home from my fourth grade uh, end of semester with my report card. And there was uh, an episode of the FBI being shot at this, this little pond in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, seeing Efren Zembalist Jr. And Monty Markham, who was the guest star that week and other actors, I was, like really thrilled. And, and, uh, I had by that time already knew I wanted to be an actor. 
um, I had this one character actor grab my report card and said, what's this kid? What kid? What's this? This is good. You got the, uh, the A in English and the B in history, but what's this D in math? You know, how are you going to know you want to be an agent or a, a, an actor? How are you, how are you going to know if your agent's screwing you or not? You know, it was, it was nice to get advice at that young age, yeah. but, um, but my folks didn't want me to be an actor. They, they worked on the peripheral of the Hollywood scene first for a while. They were in, uh, bail bonds. Um, I know my mom bailed celebrities out of jail, like Lenny Bruce and what? Winston Churchill's daughter and all sorts of interesting celebs. And my dad, uh, then went into managing, uh, private clubs where people, he was partners with Lauren Green for a while or had Omar Sharif and Don Adams and lots of stars playing at his club, playing uh, bridge and backgammon and uh, kind of gambling club. And they saw most actors as these, you know, swearing, drinking, smoking uh, people who didn't seem happy in their lives. And they didn't want to see me go, go that route. So they didn't really encourage me to pursue acting as a career. Um, but, you know, I kept doing what I could in school and community theater and elsewhere. And when I was 18, I finally, you know, said, I want to do this. And they started supporting me a little bit more. And they didn't really, uh, I think, full-fledged get behind me until they saw my name up on the big screen in uh, oh, 1982, wow. 83. Oh, wow. So do you remember your first role? Like the first one on IMDb was Station Rider in the movie FM. Was there something before that? Yeah. Uh, when when I uh, got out of school, I really wanted to get on big movie sets just to feel what it was like to be a, a, at a studio and, and working on a, a film. So I, I joined one of these companies that pretty much just supplied waiver extras to films. And that's one of those films, uh, uh, FM, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, The Rose, uh, oh, cool. I Want to Hold Your Hand. Those were all pretty much, you know, just extra parts, though, like on Sergeant Pepper's, I got upgraded to being a dancer uh, in the scene where I get brainwashed by Alice Cooper. And uh, I could have joined the union then I think uh, when it cost a ho- all of $350 now, what is it about six grand? Um, wow. But I remember at the time I was like, ah, gosh, join the union or pay my rent. Hmm. You're not <laughs> going to pay my rent. Um, so I, I found, you know, of course it very exciting to be on, on the sets. I remember on FM doing these scenes with Martin Mull and Eileen Brennan and uh, we, at the time I remember ha- needed to have, a, a ticket to get our meal for lunches or dinners because there was a disgruntled teamster who had been fired or something living on the universal back lot who was beating up <laughs> cleaning gals and, and security guards and stuff. So, uh, so and then he was eating apparently with casts and crews, <laughs> uh, you know, these weird memories. Um, and, and the Rose was kind of cool. I remember Norton Buffalo actually grabbing my hat and wearing it in the rest for the rest of the day uh, in this shoot of the song we were shooting and him actually finding me in this huge crowd and getting my hat back to me. I thought that was cool. Thank you, Norton. That, who's now passed that's away. That's really cool. Uh, other memories. I remember on Sergeant Pepper's, uh, this very beautiful blonde dancer, um, I kind of had, you know, a teenage crush on all of a sudden I was like, this girl's beautiful. I'm, and she was very friendly to me. And by the second day of the shoot, we were having lunch. She even bought me a beer. I think I was only 18 at the time. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like kind of gaga over her. And, and on the third day we had had Alice up on the big screen. Uh, he wasn't there in person until the third day he showed up. And I remember going uh, to see this, this girl first thing in the morning after getting out of makeup and, uh, wardrobe and i went up to her and said hey cheryl good morning she says jeffrey oh i want you to meet my husband alice I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and they're still married uh, which is lovely um he's got good taste uh so uh i you know ultimately didn't have a lot of satisfaction doing these extra roles it was kind of cool to be like on a uh, i want to hold your hand we're the crowds are uh, rioting or, or chanting outside the Beatles hotel in 
63 or whatever year it was supposed to be in New York in the dead of winter. And here we were in the back lot in Burbank and it's 105 degrees. So uh, the people were dropping like flies. They're getting heat prostate, uh, uh, <laughs> being overheated. And uh, I remember Zemeckis, I, I don't think he was capable or had the confidence to direct the crowd scenes. So we got a friend of his to direct the crowd scenes. It was Spielberg up on the oh, wow. the ladder directing us all. And, and that was kind of cool. Oh, who's that guy? That's Spielberg. Oh, far out. So it was, it was nice to be on the sets and around the, the movers and shakers, but ultimately not so satisfying. And I had the uh, artistic director of the uh, Dorothy Chandler, the uh, main theater in Los Angeles downtown after I auditioned for him for uh, uh new Neil Simon play, uh, say, you know, you got, you got talent kid, but you need to get training. And he said, no, one will take you seriously unless you get training. So I, I got his recommendations where to go in the, on the West coast. I went for the American conservatory theater and moved to San Francisco, uh, along with the, the Renaissance fair that I was working at the time and set my sights on getting in there and finally did and started my training towards my master's in uh, theater and, and acting. And then while doing my intermediate studies, uh, I fell into an opportunity to screen test for the lead in a film called The Genius. Uh, they, this uh, MGM UA had these open calls in Chicago and New York and Los Angeles and Seattle and San Francisco. And uh, I apparently in, uh, impressed the director enough and the casting director enough to get a screen test. and. Um, an agent who was friends with the director at that time, his name was Martin Brest, uh, uh, an agent who asked, you know, Martin, Marty, who's your favorite for the role? He, he said my name. And oh, so wow. this agent who had just come out from New York, William Morris agency, opening her own boutique agency, uh, pursued me and asked to sign me and represent me for this screen test because a, an actor needs to, uh, negotiate their contract before they test. Otherwise, um, you know, the actor has the, the upper hand when the studios hate that. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, so, in, uh, but in the meantime, waiting for the screen test to happen, the film, uh, the main star who was attached to it, Warren Oates passed away. And, uh, the film went into turnaround. MGM and UA had merged and the, uh, new powers that be couldn't decide whether or not, they wanted to go ahead with this film and had been in pre-production now for over uh, half a year or more. And so uh, things got a little wonky and I just kept going to school and biding my time. And um, eventually the, the name of the film changed from the genius to war games. And oh, okay. uh, I tested with Ali Sheedy the same day that uh, Dana Carvey and Brian Backer and John Stockwell and uh, who else? Eric Stoltz. We all, we all tested with wow. Ali. Years later, I talked with Eric and I, I found out he was living with Allie at that time. And I wondered why she was kind of always looking over at him <laughs> oh my God, instead of looking that. at me. It was weird. But nonetheless, uh, I didn't get that role. Naturally, none of us did. Matthew got it. And I so moved back to L.A. and worked all sorts of different jobs from valet parking to cook and waitering and so on and so forth. Uh, until I uh, landed about three months later, a nice little support role in the George Miller segment of Twilight Zone movie, the remake yeah, of movie. Yeah, the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet remake. Now, that's pretty cool. You and uh, so that was the John Lithgow. He was the Shatner role. Yes. Yeah. And my my uh, position really was sitting across from John's character. And so a lot of yeah. the time they needed to put the camera where my seat was. So I'd be hanging in the back with uh, some of these professional extras. There was a guy named Spaz Attack who talked about just uh, re recently working on Blade Runner with Harrison Ford and had this great fight scene. Unfortunately, that was cut. This guy with this giant mohawk. And then uh, Milton Berle's brother was a professional extra, uh, Jack Berle. And he told me stories about his brother being kidnapped by Al Capone to play his clubs in Chicago back in the thirties. Some great stories, you know, hanging out with the extras, but, um, uh, yeah. And John was a sweetheart. I had, uh, nothing but great 
interactions with John and, and Charles Knapp and Abby Lane and Donna Dixon and J.D. Johnston, all the, all the ensemble were really terrific. George Miller cast there with, you know, Mike Fenton and Marcy Learoff cast really wonderful, competent actors ensemble. Um, it, it was a treat being on it. I was surprised being on it because the terrible accident with John Landis, which had happened uh, earlier in the year, um, I figured that that film was dead in the water, but Spielberg said, you know, the, the accident happened on the last day of that shoot and he decided he wanted to finish it, which I thought was in terrible taste, but, um, I, I got cast and, and, uh, it was a dream working with George Miller. He's just a, a fantastic act, uh, actor's director. I think, you know, letting you create stuff in rehearsal and generally keeping it. So that was that the role that you said your parents saw your name on the big screen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So what was their reaction? They're like, okay, you know what? You can do this now. Exactly. Exactly. That's they cool. they had uh, loaned me some money so I could go to the uh, American Conservatory Theater for my tuition. And we're coming around, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was great. Uh, shortly thereafter, I got a little part in a film I have a scene with Sean Penn in a film called Crackers that Donald Sutherland and Jack Warden and Wallace Shawn star in. And then I worked, I guess, the next year on uh, Johnny Dangerously. Gosh, I'm oh, yeah. trying to keep it all in my uh, chronological. If you, have that, if you have that in your you, out of your brain, yeah, that's pretty good. Other people are so off when it comes to... No, that's pretty good. Yeah, Johnny Jane, Dangerously in '84 and Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Yeah, the Scarecrow was a really nice little guest star spot. Um, Johnny Dangerously was a, a blast to be a part of because it's such it was such a fun cast and set to be on. Uh, yeah, I was in awe of Maureen Stapleton, who's just a was terrific actress, and and I remember seeing her on her way to wardrobe and makeup at seven thirty one one morning and I'd already been through and I, I just, my, my mouth fell open as she passed me and her still in her house robe with her newspaper under her. And without even looking at me and walking straight past me, she, she said, it's not, not, it's not polite to look at an old woman first thing in the morning. <laughs> like, oh God, I love her. Um, I wanted to uh, meet Joe Piscopo because we didn't have a scene together or, or we did have a scene, but he was in the crowd or something. And uh, I remember knocking on his his trailer door before leaving for the day. And it was like, come in. I was like, oh, okay. And so I went in and, and who are you? And I was like, I just wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying your work on Saturday Night Live. And, so on. and it's, he wanted to know all about me. And he was delighted to be working on a film. He just loved making movies. I don't know what happened to Joe. He was, he was so much fun. Um, and then uh, and I became friends with uh, Dom DeLuise on that shoot. and who later on in my career helped me by using characters I played at Universal to warm up his shows that he shot at Universal and special events. That was kind of cool. Really? Um, so from that connection, from that set, you became buddies. And then later on, how, how, how later oh, yeah. on did you work with him? Uh, many years later. Uh, oh, that's he, cool. He recognized me uh, doing, I was playing Stan Laurel at Universal Studios from eighty. Oh, 80- wow. 87 to 2001 or so. And he had seen me and, and he recognized me uh, from Johnny Dangerously. And uh, he specifically requested my partner and I, as Laurel and Hardy, to come warm up the queue coming into his new Candid Camera show. And then he was, you know, big and uh, fifle uh, American tale and would use us as a uh, sort of company during these junkets for the press for the opening of that show. And I ran into him at the silent movie house with, with uh, Mel Brooks and, and Bancroft. And he had to introduce me. He was like, Mel and this boy, you know, you see Jeffrey as Dan Laurel or Charlie Chaplin or Groucho Marx and you think they're there and he's brilliant and so on and so forth. And I, I had to <laughs> remind Mel that I auditioned for him uh, for men in tights with my Marx brothers team. And, and Mel said, Oh, I remember you. We liked you. Uh, but we we had to cut the roles because in the big banquet scene, because the, the actor playing Don Corleone wanted more money. At which point I realized that was, that was Dom. So I just turned to Dom <laughs> and, and I started choking him, uh, you know, strangling Dom Deloise. It was <laughs> not easy, but, uh, 
Yeah, so uh, the, uh, the 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 tra- trajectory of my career has been very strange because I, like a year after War Games screen test, uh, I was asked from another open call to screen test for the lead in Lady Hawk. Oh, no way. And I was actually on my way to Warner Brothers to to that screen test when Matthew came down in his price. <laughs> I was like, ah, shit, I've done Renaissance fairs. I would have kicked ass on this. Uh, anyway. Um, and there's, you know, there's been a lot of them that got away. The the creator that Yvonne Posser uh, told my agent he liked me a lot for, wanted was the front runner for with uh, Peter O'Toole and Muriel Hemingway. That, that was oh, a yeah. big one that got away. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's so much for the ones that got away. There's been a lot of those. But nonetheless, the uh, t- television work was really fun to do. Uh, though, you know, old habits die hard. As soon as I got to the set of that Scarecrow and Mrs. King, um, I went over and started having breakfast with the group of people that I saw. And it turned out there were, you know, all the extras. And... When the AD came by to, you know, get me into wardrobe and makeup, um, all the extras said, well, aren't you with us? And I said, uh, no, I'm the guest star this week. And they were like, what are you doing over here with us? And I was like, well, you're people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's something that I've noticed that is kind of uh, irksome, I think, is the segregation of the status people. You know, the extras often are treated like crap on big films, especially when there's a lot of them, they're herded like cattle and fed pretty poorly and are last to eat and so on and so forth, which I can get because of the importance of perhaps other crew and, and cast. But I've been on just as important, but I've been on sets where they're really treated just terrible, but especially by the uh, second ADs or people who like, you know, being bossy or, or got up on the wrong side of bed or what have you. So that's, that's a, part of the industry that's left a bad taste in, in my mouth and others. Um, Here, I'll tell, I'll tell you a story that might make you a little bit, again, I'm not a, this isn't my firsthand story, but so I, uh, I interviewed the actor, Larry Hankin. Oh, and, I know Larry. Uh, we, we, uh, Larry and I are in a film together. That's uh, just coming out. Oh, no way. That's cool. Yeah. I talk to him Wait. every Saturday for an hour and a half. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, it's called the Eden Theory. Take a look for it. I've been mentoring the the kid who made the film uh, for a couple of years. Oh, that's awesome! Oh wait, is that the? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've seen that on there. We talked about that. Cool. That's so what cool. was what was Larry's story? So when he landed the role in uh, in Escape from Alcatraz, mm-hmm. he was like, because because they filmed it actually on the island. So when he got there for the first day he didn't have a lot of scenes like the first few days. So he just like hung out. So he noticed Clint would eat with the extras. So he started doing that. And he thought that was the coolest thing ever because Clint at that time was already a monster star. He was probably oh, yeah. what, the biggest at that time, pretty much like, yeah, you got to think all the dirty hire movies are a couple of them were out already. And uh, yeah, he said, and that's what he said. He's like, Clint was so cool. He's sitting there eating with the extras. So I like that. And then I've heard the other stories about the star, not even talking to people when the cameras weren't on. And you could tell because the movies most of the time flop, not, not like there's correlation all the time, but they just don't work because there's that. I don't know. There's the people are motivated. Yeah. You can't, yeah. you can't deny chemistry. You can see it. I, I was worried about that scarecrow Mrs. King because Kate Jackson wouldn't give me the time of day for the first couple of days. Um, by the third day we were having lunch together, but, Oh, nice. I was like, hey, I'm your guest star. Come on, be nicer. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Clint was that way in, in 84. Uh, I was asked to uh, play a role in Pale Rider with Clint. And, Which is awesome. Uh, yeah, the pictures on there are so cool. Yeah, the the role kind of was a, it was, a, it was just, I'd say, credit to my, my agent at that time, that, that wonderful agent out of William Morris, Paula. She would call around the different studios and say, what's, what are you casting that doesn't come out? That's not out in the breakdown services. And, uh, when she called Warner brothers, Lauren Lloyd and, and company over there, uh, they said, well, we got this part that, uh, has come open, but we're going to cast it from our files. And she got the description and realized I fit that description. She submitted me. What had happened was, uh, Chris Penn, you know, Sean Penn's a little brother. Yeah. Uh, had met Clint at a party in Malibu and said, I want to do a film with you. And 
and Clint sent him Pale Rider and offered him oh. the role of uh, Eddie Conway. And and Chris threw it back. Said, I don't want to play this tin pan good guy. I want to play a bad guy. So Clint put him in the role of LaHood's son, you know, the, the uh, character that almost rapes uh, and gets away with raping uh, Sidney yeah. Penny's character. And that left Eddie Conway open. So the actor playing Eddie's brother, Teddy, went into that, that role, Chuck LaFont. And so they had the Teddy role open. And that's the one that casting mentioned to my agent. And uh, I went in and I wasn't going to leave anything to chance because I knew in my audition, I was going to have to cry over daddy's dead body. And uh, so I use a lot of different acting techniques and whatever works for me works. You know, I, I don't want to leave anything to chance. So I had, you know, my sort of sense emotional recall a lock of my grandma's hair in my pocket and I had done my fantasy charging stuff or uh, using, you know, uh, my fantasizing my own father's dead body and crying over that. And, and, and then the, it was kind of Zen because it was pretty well written. And uh, when Fritz Manns, the producer started shooting me uh, with the video, uh, you know, the tears came fine and the lines came and I was in it and he sent it to Clinton, you know, three days later, I'm on an airplane to Idaho to shoot for four weeks that's awesome. Yeah, so it was it was a great shoot to be on. That's that's another ensemble cast that I was really happy to be part of. The uh, I had mutual friends with Carrie Snodgrass, so I buddied up with her real quick, and and actually kept her from quitting the movie a few times because um, <laughs> she she's a very strong actress who had very uh, different ideas about the character than Clint and Michael Moriarty had. Um, and I'd calm her down with, you know, strawberry margaritas and talk her, let her just talk it out. And she finally stayed with the film, but she came close to quitting. I know Michael Moriarty quit the film at one point. Um, <laughs> if you, if you see when Hall Barrett, his character goes into town the first time and, and uh, brother and I both say the same line to him at different times. Aren't you going to town? Ain't that kind of dumb? Um, and when he goes to town, and there's this fight with the local thugs during one of the rehearsals. Uh, one of the actors, I don't know if it was uh, Charles Hallahan or Marvin McIntyre, someone uh, didn't follow choreography or kept it slow until it was really set in stone. And Michael ended up getting three fingers broken. Oh my and God. Michael was a composer. So he was writing a symphony at the time. He had been commissioned and uh, he he couldn't write his music and, and he was furious. So he, he quit the film. It took Clint, I think, two or three days to get him back on the set. And, and Clint figured out how to get him one of those uh, um, Melodian Mellotrons. Uh, it's the type of keyboard you can play with one hand and blow um, you know, to create the, the sound he could compose in his, his dressing room. Wow. Uh, so if you see the film and you see when he's on the buckboard coming back from town after that fight, he's got a cast on his left hand that he doesn't even hide. <laughs> it's, oh it's pretty fun. There's a lot of uh, interesting creative editing in that. When when we shot Daddy's death scene where Spider gets shot from head to toe uh, with the with the giant gold nugget, it took us three days to shoot that scene. And uh, the first day it was sunshine but snow on the ground because we were shooting on the top of a mountain that was exposed. It was like most of the time with the wind chill factor about 10 below. Yeah. <laughs> it was a cold shoot. So the, uh, uh, every time we'd shoot a little bit of him, you know, getting shot and, and the coverage, uh, he'd have to change wardrobe, you know, and re re get wired for the bullet holes and all that stuff. Uh, and the second day of that shoot, um, we were in a blizzard. So when it goes to the coverage of brother and I, Teddy and Eddie at the mercantile, you can see we're in a blizzard and it cuts back to spider and he's in sunshine, but the cuts, the editor, I mean, really was fantastic. He, it happens so fast. He really, it doesn't register. And then on the third day, when we finally made it to, to Doug's body, spider's body, uh, they all the snow had melted and the sun was back out. So we had to bring in the oil based snow machine. Um, <laughs> so when, when you see Blankenship, the uh, mercantile guy coming after the boys to get them away from the dead body out of harm's way or whatever, and he's walking through the snow, the snow 
is picked up by the wind in these giant clumps uh, and snow doesn't act like that. So it's, it's something to watch for, which is kind of amusing uh, for those sheltered at home that have nothing better to do. Yes. Right. <laughs> and then from there, it's a few times on your IMDb. And I, I wanted to ask you like what, what you did on those. So they have like uh lover boy, Heather's and like crime of innocence, voice actor. What yeah, were the best of times. things they did on those? Yeah, yeah, best times, yeah. About about those uh, about that time in the early mid eighties, uh, I joined a loop group uh, called Custom Looping. Uh, Lee French, who was in the committee with Larry Hankin, in fact, um, oh yeah, got improv actors to go in and do the voices of the people who are not miked. You know, all films oh, and TV nice. shows uh, g- generally mic the principals. And yet if someone's walking by and their mouth is moving, they're not on mic. So they need to have something in their mouths coming out. Uh, and, and then also there's a general, what we call in the industry, uh, laying a carpet where uh, if it's a crowd scene, you have people just do, speaking non-specifically and then they turn it way down. And so on Heather's uh, crime of innocence, I, I filled in various voices for various characters. The, uh, Crime of Innocence was a Andy Griffith TV movie based on a, a true story where uh, this judge sends these girls who were being bad, who ran away from home for the night or something. Uh, um, even though they came home at midnight or whatever, uh, he, they because the parents had filed a report, they still had to appear in court. And to teach them a lesson, the judge sent them to jail. And then while at jail, they were raped by the, the guards. And uh, yeah, true story. A lovely true story. Anyway, uh, so I, I did voices of some of the inmates in the jail. <laughs> I said, Bring that little girl over here. Come on. You know, uh, <laughs> really fun stuff. The, the group of actors, voice actors we had were like uh, uh, Nicholas Guest, Christopher Guest's brother, and, and Lorraine uh, Newman's sister, Tracy, and uh, Archie Hahn, all these really great funny, funny, uh, improv artists. And, um, it was, it was great to work on Heather's and see it before anyone else, uh, among the lover boy, the same thing. And then going back to uh pale rider, I remember I showed up to do my own ADR. That's, you know, dialogue replacement. Uh, since there was a, a technical problem with my crying over dad's bo- dad's dead body. Um, uh-huh. So I come in and sure enough, my, my loop group is there. And Lee looks at me and says, I didn't call you in for this. I said, well, I'm, I'm here to do my own stuff. And she was like, what? (laughs) I said, I'm in this movie. And so it was nice to get a little recognition that it was actually on, on camera instead of just behind the microphone. Yeah. (laughs) And speaking of, uh, you know, lunch with Clint, uh, during the shoot, he fired our caterer. And, you know, we're, someone talked Clint into building that set on the top of a mountain, uh, probably Bruce Surtees, the cinematographer, because everywhere he would put his camera, you had a breathtaking view, the Sawtooth Mountains or the White Cloud Mountains or the Salmon River range. And uh, the next day after firing the, um, the caterer, the new caterer came in and I was having lunch. It was just Clint and I in a blizzard <laughs> uh, having steak and lobster. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was very surreal. It was kind of cool, though. You know, a lot of people can say that they did that. Yeah, choking Dom DeLuise, eating steak and lobster with Clint Eastwood. In a blizzard. Yeah, in a blizzard. That's something. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, fun times. So uh, at about this time I was also doing um, see, the looping and gosh. Oh, you got my IMDb, IMDb up? Yeah, so, I'm, I'm tr- trying yeah, to so what of- you have in that year, it's pretty much Loverboy, Heather's in 89, and then Back to the Future Part 2. Before that, there's a few things like Max Headroom, oh, Dallas. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, uh, the commercial. The, I did a um, Back to the Future theme cherry coke commercial uh, really? talk about irony in in 85 i guess that was um 
Yeah, Stan Rigotti, who was a feature director, directed this commercial for Cherry Coke, big budget. And I remember I, I got two commercials that year with Victoria Jackson from uh, Saturday Night Live back then. Oh, yeah. One was a Mitsubishi truck commercial that when I improvised uh, my tagline, uh, I, I improvised my bit for the audition. They used it, my what I came up with as the tagline for the spot. And that was really kind of fun. Soak it up, boy. Oh, my God. So in the, the Cherry Coke one, the... Uh, the Marty McFly character goes back to the 50s, tries to cherry coke and says, got to take this back to the 80s. And I'm just a greaser in that. But uh, I mean, it's kind of ironic with how history played out with me yeah. becoming a part of those films. And it's crazy that it was a cherry coke commercial because in Back to the Future 2, there's a Pepsi joke. Yes, because uh, Pepsi paid all the money. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they did. <laughs> and I think Michael liked Pepsi too. <laughs> so yeah so how how did that all come about because i'm sure you saw the first one and you're like hey crispin glover's in this role how did it get presented to you by your agent yeah i uh i knew crispin from a film i did with him and dan o'hurley he at the american film institute in 83 before he got the first back to future so when back oh. to future came out and i saw him i was like i know that guy he's fucking rocking this he's knocking <laughs> it out of the park he was so great in that role so uh, in 88, I guess it was, I uh, was working at Universal playing Stan Laurel and, and Charlie Chaplin. And uh, the agent who handled lookalikes also supplied uh, the Back to the Future Office's production with Michael's photo double, uh, Kevin Holloway. Oh, wow. And uh, Jeff Breyer called me up and said, uh, do you know who Crispin Glover is? I was like, Yeah. Um, well, this production's looking for a, a photo double stand-in for him, and I was like, "Well, no, he's he's taller than me, and I don't look anything like him." Uh, and but but get me in there, you know. I, I need to work. My uh, second kid, uh, baby, was on its way, and I needed to get my medical. So yeah. I uh, went down and met with the assistant directors, who then. I guess talked to production about me and then I was sent to casting and uh, read a scene from the first film. And I guess they liked me enough to send me then to makeup who then started fitting me, taking fitting me for a body cast and a uh, facial molds. And then I screen tested in the young George makeup. And so I, I figured they needed George in two places at the same time since it sounded like they needed Marty in two places at the same time. And I screen tested for Zemeckis and Dean Cundy. Um, and I remember next door, uh, the Dick Tracy movie was shooting and, you know, all the prosthetic makeup that all those guys, you know, seeing uh, William Forsythe and um, Dustin Hoffman and company, you know, Pacino in their makeups. And I was like, wow, what the hell is this? This looks amazing. And they were looking at me going, what the hell are you supposed to be? And I was like, uh, <laughs> George. So, uh, so I figured I, because I had Kristen's number, I called him up. I said, listen, I, I could use this work, you know, say a good word for me. And he didn't call me back. And I, um, then found out from my makeup person that Crispin was out. And I was like, oh what? My God. And so I just figured that he got another film that he really couldn't get out of. The, the scheduling just wasn't going to line up for him to reprise his role. And I was, I couldn't fathom how they could even consider doing the film without him because he was so memorable and so great in that first, first film. But yeah. nonetheless, uh, you know, being a trooper, um, you know, went to work and some of the first things we shot were uh, the enchantment under the sea dance, you know, recreating the kiss with Leah and Lorraine and, and uh, the fight with Biff and Tom, uh, out in the parking lot and all that. Um, and, and we were very accurate. We, we really stuck to recreating what the first film had from different angles. And to this day, I'd say there's probably, gosh, 35, 40% of the public out there who still don't realize it's a different actor because they spliced my work together with some close-up shots from the first film of, of Christmas that were either yeah. not used or whatever. And uh, And I was never really told during production they didn't have his permission to make me up in the young George makeup to make me look like him. So it was a little bit of a pain, but things started becoming apparent, you know, when I'm hanging upside down as old George in, in the future, 
<laughs> uh, was, a couple of the crew members came over and said, you know, all this torture hanging upside down was meant for Christmas. I was like, yeah, I know. It's obvious. And, <laughs> and Spielberg at one point came up to me and said, so, Crispin, I see you got your million dollars after all. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, the, it was it was pretty upsetting, actually, to kind of learn that both sides didn't like each other. At, at, after part three came out, uh, Crispin called me up and said, you know, what they did to you and what they've done to me is not fair. And uh, I, I'm going to have to go after them. I was like, I think you should. Because... <laughs> Uh, it really was kind of crummy and he, uh, you know, they, they settled for three quarters of a million dollars before it went to court. Uh, but you know, it drug on for over a year before that settlement. And unfortunately it, you know, you would think at the time it would be really great for my career, but they universal wanted to keep me quiet to avoid Crispin suing. I was like, how are you going to stop that? And, uh, so they didn't really let me have any footage or let me promote myself. And I was kind of, aced out of some of the bigger profile events like screenings and such. And uh, Really? So you weren't allowed to go to any screenings? Uh, no. Oh, <laughs> it was kind of crummy. Um, yeah. Well, uh, one of them, I think for part three, they were going to let me come if I bought the ticket, which and it was a charity, so a $350 ticket to go watch a movie that I'm in. I was like, this isn't right. <laughs> yeah, I was there. Yeah. And, and I was out of town for the part two screening, but I got to, I talked to a movie theater in New York where I was doing the Macy's parade into letting me come with some friends. And, and that was kind of cool. That's um, awesome. What was it like seeing yourself on the big screen, like sitting in the audience? Oh, it's always exciting. You know, when the, yeah. the name comes up on the screen, your friends or people are in the audience that know you, uh, you know, and they cheer, that's always a good feeling. But my favorite <laughs> is when I get a laugh, uh, like in, in Pale Rider, when, Teddy says, you're going to town right after Eddie up the road said the same thing. And the audience gives a big laugh. That's, that's rewarding. Uh, I bet. I can't deny it. Um, I remember going to see Sergeant Peppers in Westwood, you know, with 500 screaming adolescent girls every time BGs or Peter Frampton come on the screen, but, but they were screaming at them. It wasn't me. So I, I but I lived vicariously <laughs> through them. That's uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, eventually I just said goodbye. Hollywood was uh, just too sort of feeling um, crowded. The, the the traffic in L.A. is like nonstop. I, I'm, I'm sure right now it's pretty good, but no one's going out. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the traffic was making me into kind of a, a monster on the road. I was really upset when people would cut me off or spending hours in the car instead of with my family or at home or, or yeah. at work. Um, so I eventually uh, decided it was time just to move on. And I, I moved to Northern California, back to, nice. you know, at the Bay Area, where, where, which is really a lovely place to live. And, uh, and I keep working. I've done quite a few independent films and oh, yeah. continue on stage. I've uh, recently played Igor in A Young Frankenstein, the musical. And oh, I've that played, is awesome. Uh, I did the uh, the Perry, the Robin Williams role in a stage version of the Fisher King. Oh, and, sweet. Uh, a couple other heavy dramas, some Shakespeare. You know, I, I try to keep busy because it's it's my nature. It's my blood. Yeah, you've been doing it for so long. Here's a question because I know obviously Back to the Future, it left a bad taste in your mouth afterwards. And it's cool now. I see all these photos of you with uh, Leah Thompson uh, and all the other actors, which is cool. Was there a period that you didn't even want to like think about it? And then finally somebody reached out and then you started going it's, to these events. Yeah. I, I don't want to say it, it left a bad taste in my mouth. It, I yeah. loved working on the films and I loved the ensemble oh, sure. and the, and the great talent. It was just disappointing that these very respectable professionals tried to pull a shitty move on, on, uh, you know, the, the actors and, and it's just, it's disappointing more than anything. And eventually uh, I was discovered by the fans. I had uh, several fans come find me at universal and, and interview me in the, the early nineties. Uh, oh, then cool. the DeLorean owners kind of ad adopted me. I started coming to their uh, conventions in, uh, gosh, I would, uh, did, did one in Chicago, one in Orlando, one in Tennessee, Pigeon Forge. 
uh, one in Ohio, Dayton. And, and those were really great uh, because I was embraced by these lovely folk who all owned DeLoreans. Uh, and from that, I started doing some of these Comic-Cons, which is uh, always great. The biggest reunion was the Hollywood show in 08, I think it was. And Michael showed up unannounced and got mobbed. Oh, that was cool. that was kind of fun. I think we had about 20 of the cast and crew at that one. And then uh, Jason, the owner of the London Film and Comic Con, uh, did a big reunion in 2015 where uh, 11 of the cast members that I was included with uh, came over and we had a nice reunion. Um, and, the, and I think we had 5,000 fans at our, our panel who hung on our every word. It was really thrilling. That's awesome. Isn't that crazy? I know obviously you have stage background, so or working at Universal, you see the 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 reaction right then and there. But it's gotta be cool years later from something that you you shot. Just people are they love it. It's gotta be such a great, gratifying feeling. Yeah, the the adoration of the trilogy has just grown generation after generation, rediscover it and Example right now uh, in post-production is a fan remake of part two. Um, wow. This, this uh, gentleman named Taylor has broken the film up into 88 second slots and he's assigned it to uh, 80 different fans who are remaking oh, wow. those, those uh, scenes and it's going to go online probably in the next day or so he, he just got his last two scenes i think and is in post-production right now as we speak so look for it um project 88 something like that uh, on facebook and online i can yeah, i'll send you the, i'll send you the link after after oh, our please, yeah yeah oh that's pretty cool did he reach out to you and talk to you about it are you doing anything in it i i had a, uh, an uber fan friend named kevin bosch who moved out to la from florida uh, just a year or two ago who uh, is recreating the scene from backstage at the Enchantment on the Sea Dance that I'm in. So oh, I, nice. repri- I reprise my role in that. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> that is so cool. And my wife plays Lorraine. Oh, really? That's, yeah. that's so cool. So here's a question that I have from all the, so how did you, obviously your age and growing up, I'm sure you watched a lot of, you know, Groucho Marx. I, I watched it too growing up and Stan Laurel, did you always have like an impression of them growing up or is it something that you just developed? Later? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I, uh, I, I watched, uh, some Laurel and Hardy and some Marx brothers growing up. I, I was probably a bigger Marx brothers fan. Um, <clears throat> but I, um, needed the job when I heard about the job. Uh, I remembered what I could, uh, and put together what I had for my own wardrobe to kind of kind of go up and do my in, in interpretation of them. Luckily, the actor who played Oliver Hardy at that time knew my work from I'd played Mercutio in a production of Romeo and Juliet in, in Hollywood, and he knew my work from that. And he, he turned to the boss and said, this guy's got talent. I'll train him. We'll get him into shape. And so I got hired. Oh, cool. And so for over the next two weeks, I started pulling all my studies together and, and finding the mannerisms, the physical gesture of Stanley's uh, on-screen character, and then realized what a genius he is, uh, because Stan would often write, even direct and edit a lot of the shorts and, and films. Uh, he really was the workhorse. Uh, of course, Hal Roach would only give him one credit, but uh, finding out about Stan's history and talent was just a revelation. And I became friends with his daughter, Lois, and her husband, Tony, late Tony Haas. Now Lois is gone, but uh, oh, wow. it, it's been a thrill to get to know them and be able to look through Stanley's personal scrapbooks and, and learn how hard he worked since he was a child. One of my favorite photos is a picture of him at, at 10 years old directing his brothers and sisters on a stage that his father built for them in the backyard in Lancashire. Wow. Uh, just in Alverston. And it's been really uh, remarkable. The earliest picture I think I've ever seen of Charlie Chaplin was in Stanley's scrapbook. Charlie must have been I could, uh, probably 18 at the most. And it, and it said to my dearest friend, Stan, you know, you know, your friend, Charlie. And it was 
like this is priceless stuff. This is remarkable. And and to be privy to that uh, was really a gift. And then when I started playing Charlie Chaplin, learning about his genius and becoming obsessed with that, and then getting back to Groucho, uh, mainly putting together Charlie and Groucho to inspire and instigate a, a, a hiring of an elevating of uh, performance of the first string actors that were already playing those those characters because I yeah. felt they were kind of doing shoddy jobs and so I wanted to give them a run for their money kind of and it worked <laughs> they they actually upped their games which was really lovely yeah that. man that's so cool well Jeffrey this has been awesome yeah th- thanks for having me on I've got thanks for taking a, the time I appreciate it a gazillion stories more and uh, look for me in. A couple of things doing the festival circuit and then maybe wide release, the Eden Theory with our friend Larry right. Hankin. Yeah. Uh, and the Carnival of Wonders, a very interesting, wonderful short that I play the embodiment of death, uh, but as a sideshow mystic. Um, then I've got, uh, gosh, I, I'm oh, the doing it. Is that something on there? The Standard and Treasure Tales? Yeah, those are both in, uh, you know, trying to get their funding and all to get, so we can shoot them. So time will tell on those. I love the treasure tales tale that that's a really great, uh, a mystery, a fun a play. Hopefully knock on wood, I get to play this very, how shall I say the, uh, character isn't who you think he is and, and it'd be really fun reveal. Um, oh, sweet. and then I'm also writing a one man show playing uh, Mark Twain where, um, I, I did a PBS movie, dramatization of Twain's trip to uh, Israel, uh, the Holy Land in 1867. And I learned all about, of course, Twain's genius. And now I've got, of course, 36 books that I've read and drawing from those books, I'm putting together a show about Twain's tragedies, his shadow life that had plagued him all his life, because no one really has done that yet. So I want to, I'm working on that show right now, developing. That's awesome. You got a lot going on. Well, I wish you the best and I'll keep tabs on you and we'll, we'll keep in touch. I'm going to talk to Larry about you this Saturday. Oh, great. Give him, give him a big <laughs> howdy for me and, and I'll send you some links and photos to, to support Sweet. this interview. Awesome, man. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. Have a great rest of your day and stay safe. Everyone stay safe, stay safe yes. and healthy. Yes. <laughs> Thanks again. Bye. And man, wasn't Jeffrey awesome? Just imagine having the opportunity to, uh, well, a lot of his stories, the opportunities and the chance that he had, you know, he's like talking and uh, kind of sweet on Alice Cooper's girlfriend. And then just, you know, eating a lobster dinner with just Clint Eastwood is a really cool story. And choking Dom DeLuise, which is, that's, that's a lot of hard work. But uh, thank you, Jeffrey. And now your job is, to make sure that you watch Back to the Future Part 3. It's available on Netflix. Um, It's one that I did not watch as much as Parts 1 and 2, so that's pretty interesting. And also, I'm going to put all of Jeffrey's information in the episode notes so you can follow him on social media, and then also you could check out his IMDb for some of the projects that he was talking about towards the end. And don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast. It helps us out, so rate us five stars and write something nice and uh, don't forget to follow us on all social media at sequels only and check out our website sequelsonly.com good night